Uh, this summer, we are going through a series in the Beatitudes, and so we're going to be continuing in that series today. If you have your Bible with you, you can open, up, open it up to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to read, uh, I'm actually, I'm going to read from the beginning and then through the one that we're going to look at today. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, and then we'll start off right there at the top, um, just so we have context. Uh, continue to keep that context in mind as we look at each one of these individually. Uh, so we'll be in Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bible, you can open it up there. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay because we'll have the words on the screens next to me. So you can follow along there. If you don't have a Bible or you're having trouble finding it, no worries. Uh, nobody's going to get left behind here, okay? So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Today we're going to be looking at the Beatitude in verse 8. But like I said, I want to read from the start just to keep it uh, in, in context. So in Matthew chapter 5 and starting in verse 1, it says, When he saw the crowds, speaking of Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So ever since we started this series back in the beginning of June, kicking off the summer for our summer series, ever since we started this series, uh, I, one of the things that I uh, presented or that I argued from right off the bat was that the Beatitudes, which is what these are here, this list of blesseds, all right, the, the, the Beatitudes, which kicks off the Sermon on the Mount, there's a couple of things that we need to keep in mind and that we need to remember whenever we look at the Beatitudes. Uh, number one, the Beatitudes is not a to-do list. The Beatitudes is not a to-do list um, because it doesn't describe any, any actions, right? Instead, what the Beatitudes is describing uh, the character of a community. Moreover, the Beatitudes is not something that is natural, the, the things that are described here, even blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not describing things that we would call you know, natural personality traits, right? We have different, uh, the, the, people have different personality traits. Some people are more outgoing. Some people are, are, are more shy. You know, others are, there's all these different types of personalities. You know, there's all those tests out there that you can take, you know, uh, to, to see what your personality is, but there, there's no personality test out there that'll tell you if you are humble, like Jesus talks about here, or if you're poor in spirit, okay? I don't think the Enneagram has a number for poor in spirit or, or, or persecuted, okay? Uh, if it does have that number, then you, you, you can come fuss at me later, but it's not describing anything that naturally comes to any person. Instead, it is describing... Um, in a sense, supernatural characteristics that are implanted into your heart and grown by God through the Holy Spirit. And I think you would, it would be hard for us to point to a single beatitude which defends these points that I've been making greater than the one we're looking at today in verse 8, which is, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Purity in heart today, this is one that, like I said, I think that this one presents possibly... A, a, most singularly more than any of the others, what I've been trying to say throughout this series, which is that these are not things that come natural to us, but that we need outside help. Uh, the, it's not a to-do list, but a character list. Um, and it, 
beyond that too, something we're going to be looking at today, it is extremely unique among world religions for Jesus, the founder, right, and the center of our religion, to say this is our list of, of values and so on, right? Purity of heart is also incredibly unique if you read across other worldviews and religions. And so we're going to look at this beatitude today. We're going to look at, number one, what is the heart? Number two, what does it mean to be pure in heart? What is purity of heart? And then the last one, how do we become pure in heart? All right? So what is the heart? What is purity in heart? And then how do we become pure in heart? So obviously, if we're going to understand this beatitude, then we need to begin by identifying what the heart is. And, and, and that might, I think it would be foolish of us to think that anything in this beatitude, or any of them, honestly, is, is so common sense, right, or something that is so obvious on surface level that we don't need to stop and really ask what it means, what Jesus is saying, what he's getting at. And especially here, because I think it would be really easy for us to come to blessed are the pure in heart and say, oh, okay, we got that, right? Because on the surface, the words appear very simple, right? None of them are hard to pronounce. They're all common words we use. But if we do that, then I think it'd be dangerous because we're coming at it, and then we're going to bring the definitions of heart, purity, seeing God, right? We're going to bring the definitions of all of these things, even God, right, that are given to us by our culture, that are, that are poured into us, through social media and TV, right, or maybe even our, our family background, whether, whether how informed by Scripture that was or not, we're going to be bringing in all those definitions, which are not necessarily the ones that Jesus meant, and then apply them to what Jesus said and completely miss what he was getting at. So that's why we need to start with, what does heart mean then? What is the heart? It is simple, but we do need to make sure we understand what Jesus meant by it. The heart is this. This is the first point. The heart is who you are. The heart is who you are. And once again, it's important we understand this and distinguish it from just what our, our, our culture typically means by the heart. What our culture usually means by the heart or, or, uh, is, is just the seat of your affections, right? It's where your emotions lie. Or it's, it's that organ inside of you that, that creates love, Right? It's, the very, it's the very happy organ of your heart, right? And it's the one that gives you the warm fuzzies and all these things. Or sometimes the heart is spoken of almost as if it's uh, in this mystical sense where, you know, you, you're trying to make a decision and you're told to follow your heart, right? Now, if you really begin to analyze that and think about it, it makes no sense at all, right? Because your heart is a part of you. How can it be leading you? Right? That makes no sense at all what it means to follow your heart. And then uh, it, it doesn't make any sense further than that because uh, so often you don't even know what your heart wants. <laughs> right? That's why you're in that predicament in the first place. So, you know, there's all these bad ideas out there and, 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 or, or just ideas that are alien to Scripture. But whenever we look at the Bible and whenever it talks about the heart, what the Bible is talking about is not just that it's the seat of your emotions or, or that's where love comes from, but what Scripture is, gets at whenever it talks about your heart is that is the seat, that is the core of who you are. In the Bible, 
there's not such a stark contrast and there's not such bold lines being drawn between between your mind or heart or whatever else like we do in our culture today because we live in the post-enlightenment, right? So we have all these years behind us of, of, of rationalism and then romanticism and so on. And, and, and the result of that is that today we tend to look at ourselves and who we are as human beings in a very divided way. Like we have our mind over here and then we have our heart over here. And, and if you're a, a person who believes in, in the spirit, then you have, a, you have a soul that exists somewhere else. And they, they can communicate with one another, but they aren't really one with one another. Scripture doesn't divide the human being in such stark ways. No, scripture does talk about the mind, right? But, but still, you're seen as a whole, Okay, and the word that is used most often to describe the whole of you as a human being is the heart. Okay, the heart is who you are. The heart is not what you do. The heart is who you are. The heart is is your is your character. It is the core of you, and it's not necessarily something that is talking about identity. Okay, I don't want us to get confused with that. It's not talking about identity so much as, as the core of your character, the quality of your character, right? This will make more sense as we continue to go with it. But let's just look at this. Christianity is an inside-out religion. Christianity is an inside-out religion. All the Beatitudes, but like I said, especially this one, are things that are focused on the core of our being. There are things that are focused on our character qualities, not that are focused on our, on our actions and behaviors. And so what Jesus says here is, is blessed are the humble, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. He's not saying, and then there's all these rewards that come along with it, right? Jesus doesn't say in this, in this grand right, preamble to his Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't say blessed are those who, who do righteousness, he doesn't say, blessed are those who have uh, pure actions, right? But he's, he talks about the heart, and he talks about the desires. The focus here is on the inside of the person, the soul, the heart, the seat, the character of who the person is. Now, it doesn't stop there, right? Because obviously, if you, if you then move on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gets into a lot of ethical teaching, he talks about uh, what your hands do then, right? And, and the New Testament has a lot of commands for us. The whole scripture has a lot of commands for what we do in our, in our life with our actions and behaviors, okay? So it doesn't stop inside the heart, but it starts there. And that's what I mean by Christianity is an inside-out religion. religion. Christianity says if you want to change a person, you must change, first change the heart, and then if you can change the heart, then transformation will flow out into their life from that interchange outward. Now, this is the complete opposite of the rest of our world. Every other world religion, every other worldview that exists out there today, and every other scheme and program of man up until today is an outside-in program. It is an attempt to change human beings, to try to mold the heart or change the character or capture the mind through outside-in means. Right? Especially, this is the basis of every single other world religion. Whenever you have the core of, of what defines that community in every other world religion, you'll, you'll find a list of rules. You'll find a list of uh, uh, achievements that you must make, right? Whether this is the eightfold path of Buddhism, whether it is the five pillars of Islam, whether it is sacraments or whatever else it is, you're given a list of rules and it is here are the things that you need to do 
if you want to have the reward of being saved, if you want to have the reward of seeing God, right? It's assumed that if you can change all these behaviors on the outside, then you'll be good enough on the inside. Jesus says it works the other way around. Those who see God are those who are pure in heart. As we go on, you'll see those who are pure in heart then do obey, right? But Jesus begins from the inside out. And so here's what this means for our world today. What I've already pointed out before is that Christianity is unique for this inside-out dynamic. Christianity is completely unique for this inside-out dynamic. And what it is, it really, it's a challenge to the rest of the world. It's a challenge to all other religions, worldviews, and philosophies of wisdom that exist out there. It says to the world, you believe you can change humanity. You believe that you can mold men and women. Well, good luck with your program. You see, here's the difference. If I, I've used this analogy in the past before, so it might be familiar for some of you. Here's the difference. Every other worldview and religion comes to the person and looks at them like a tree. But there's it, a tree that is barren and that, and that has no fruit on it, right? Whether that be, it has no flowers, it has no apples, oranges, whatever else on it. And so you can go up to that tree and you can take an apple and then you can nail it to that tree. And then you can take another apple and you can nail it again and I mean, if you're doing that, why not then take a pear and nail it to the tree and a potato and nail it to the tree? Right? You can go to the street and you can nail all of these different fruits upon it. And so from the outside, it looks like, wow, look at all the fruit that this tree is bearing. Look at how this tree is full of life. But just nailing apples or oranges, whatever else, to the tree is not transforming the inside of that tree. On the inside, if you could get beneath the bark, right, if you could get beneath skin level, it might be completely dead and decaying. It might be dry rotting from the inside out. And so while with all your best efforts you can nail fruits to it, it doesn't change the the core nature of that tree, which is that it is dead. You see, that is what trying to just change your life through outward moral behaviors rather than beginning with an inside-out transformation is. It's just nailing fruits to a dead tree rather than life coming from being planted into that tree and then it coming from the inside out. There's this magnificent book called The Divine Conspiracy written by uh, a Christian philosopher named Dallas Willard. And uh, at one point in the book, he goes through the Beatitudes and he spends a lot of time meditating on the Sermon on the Mount. And he points out this thing, uh, this, this characteristic about the Sermon on the Mount, which is that he says, and especially this one, about being pure in heart. He says, you know what? You can have a person who is a stub of a human being, right? They have no arms, they have no hands, they have no legs, right? So if you, have, you, would, you would assume that if you have no arms or legs, you can't get into a lot of trouble, right? But so often we think that it's only our arms and legs that are the problem, the things that get us into trouble, the things that, that put us out of favor with God, that, that prevent us from being able to see God or worship him, go to heaven, uh, you know, breaking his law and so on, so on. But here's what Dallas Willard says. What Dallas Willard said, what Jesus shows us when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, is that you can be a stub of a person and still have a completely wicked heart and therefore not be able to see God. Christianity is transformation from the inside out. And once again, this is a challenge to the rest of the world. Christianity looks at the rest of the world and says, you can try by your programs. You can try by all the education you want to attempt. You can try through manipulation and propaganda. But can you fundamentally change the human heart? 
You see, it is so important that we, that we grasp this message and the uniqueness of Christianity in this sense and, and how it teaches us that people, men and women, are transformed because we're living in a world that is trying to transform people and trying to save humanity, trying to save the world through very non-godly means, through non-Christian means, and we need to know the difference here, right? You know, one of the reasons that we are in, in so much of a problem and, and, and it's so much mess in our society today is because so often what we have done is we have looked to, to programs and to people and to leaders outside of Scripture to change people and to change society based on their very worldly means. And so, so often what we have done is we have, we have held back the gospel message uh, to, from being spread into our world in this inside-out message and then just given over societal transformation to, to government programs, for example, right? And what happens whenever you give over societal transformation to government programs? Well, the government only has two ways of trying to solve issues. That's through coercion or that's through cash, <laughs> right? Through forcing, cramming down their programs with the government gun or by just dumping tons and tons of cash, right? Trying to, our government for decades now has been trying to fix the problem of broken families and, and extreme cyclical prob, uh, poverty and crime in communities. How? By just dumping truckloads of cash, right, into all these, these war on poverty programs, into school programs. And what has that done? It hasn't changed anything. Right? If anything, the problems continue to get worse. Because why? That's an outside-in perspective. It's assuming that if you just, just, just give people more resources, that it will change their hearts. Christianity says, no, you must change the heart, which then leads to a change in behavior, and then you'll see actual transformation in society. We so desperately need this message today. So, pure in heart, the heart is who you are. Jesus begins with this inside-out perspective. If the heart is your character, what does it mean to be pure then? Because Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Here's the second major point today. Purity in heart means to love and desire God above all things. Purity in heart means to love and desire God above all things. Looking at this, we need to, it's helpful maybe to see that purity in heart and integrity are very closely related. And, and so I think that's helpful because we talk about integrity a little bit more often, what it means to have um, a, a character of integrity. And so purity in heart, of heart and integrity are very closely related here. Integrity, the meaning of that word, um, it, the word actually comes from the same Latin word that we get the, the, the math term integer Four, right? And now I'm not a calculus professor, but from what I've been told, an integer is a whole number, right? Am I, am I correct on that? Okay, yeah. And, it, and so it, it, because it comes from this integer and integrity come from the same Latin word meaning whole, okay? So to have a character of integrity means to have a, a singular whole character rather than a divided one, right? That is what you have when you have a lack of integrity. A person who has a lack of integrity is one who, who, who is honest at times and then dishonest at other times, right? Who is kind at times and then harsh at other times and so on. You can continue going. What's the problem with that person? 
Their character is divided, right? There's a line, there's something off that's causing them to be a different person in various circumstances. And so to be, have a character of integrity means to be a whole singular person who is the same everywhere all the time, right? Now, purity of heart means very much the same thing. One of the best definitions that we get or, or explanations that we have for what it means to be pure in heart comes from this Danish philosopher uh, writing uh, a, a couple centuries ago named Soren Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book called Purity of Heart. And in that book, he argued this. He said that to be pure in heart means to will or desire one thing. It's actually the subtitle of his book. So so you don't need to read the book because the whole point is right there on the cover. Purity of heart is to desire or to will one thing. So what he means is is that to have a divided heart is a a heart that that desires and, and wills after multiple different things. But purity of heart is whenever the entire heart desires and is driven after one thing. And that thing is God. So purity of heart is whenever the whole heart is devoted to love and desire for God. Purity of heart is whenever you love and desire God above all things. Kierkegaard gets this definition from Scripture. In Psalm 24, we can, look, we can see this in different places, but a good one is, is, is Psalm 24. In Psalm 24, starting verse 3, it says this. David writing says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? So he's talking about seeing God, which Jesus says is the reward for the pure in heart. David says in verse 4, The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Okay, so the pure of heart will see God, just like Jesus says here. But who is the pure in heart? He says in verse 6, Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Purity of heart. Who are, who are those who are pure in heart, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who will receive blessing from him uh, and righteousness from the God of his salvation? David says it is those who seek the face of the Lord. That is purity of heart. And so consider the implications of this. That integrity, purity of heart means desiring, worshiping God above all else. It means this. It means that your integrity is not primarily determined by what you do, but by who you worship. Talking about integrity, purity of heart, is so, it's so easy for us. And I bet a lot of us, even while I was talking about it, our mind was already starting to go to, to the things that we do. Right? It was already starting to go maybe even to some of the things that you did this week. Some of the actions or maybe or, or some of the, the, the words that you said that have been weighing a little heavily on your conscience. And so maybe you start thinking to yourself, do I have integrity? Do I have a heart of integrity? Do I have a pure heart? You started going to all these different actions that you have done. And what the world will tell you is that if you want to build a, a character of integrity, well, then here's some actions that you need to do. But once again, we need to keep our minds centered in this inside-out dynamic. What Jesus shows us here in the implication of, of purity in heart, what it means is, is that the, the quality of your heart and its purity and the quality of your character and whether it has integrity or not is not primarily determined by those things that you do. So the people who start from the outside in, are, they're on a fool's errand. It's not going to work. It is determined by who or what you worship. 
Because if to be pure in heart, as Scripture says, and as Kierkegaard uh, eloquently articulates and argues, if to be pure in heart means to love and desire God above all things, when the purity of heart comes from worshiping God. The problem with our divided hearts and minds, the problem with our lack of integrity, is that we're worshiping other things than God. You know, some of us in here, maybe you're not a Christian yet, and you have a heart that has been, that has been wholly worshiping other things than God. No, I'm not saying that you have a, a, a stone statue or, or a wooden statue in your home that you bow down to, right? But there might be other things in, in your life that you're bowing, to, bowing down to like an idol, right? That you're loving, that you're adoring, that you're devoting your life to that you're putting all of your focus and attention upon, that is the center of your hopes and dreams, but also your fears and nightmares, those objects or those people or those ideas which claim the center uh, point of loyalty in your heart, those are your gods that you are worshiping. Some of you in here are Christians, and and you are striving in, in, in discipleship and fighting for obedience and belief in the gospel, but you see that you have a heart that's still divided, right? You, you catch yourself all the time still falling into worshiping other things than God, right? You, you, you catch yourself frustrated and angry or, or discouraged and bitter. And if you start to examine your heart, why am I so frustrated? Why am I so angry? Oh, maybe it's because I've been worshiping my idea for what my future should be rather than worshiping God and, being, and, and taking rest in whatever his future and calling is for me, Right? Or maybe you start to see it in various other ways. Purity of heart means to worship God and to desire him alone. And all the problems in our life come from our hearts being divided and worshiping other things. Your integrity is not determined by what you do, but by who you worship. And then based off of who you worship, the things that you do will flow out of it. So you need to diagnose your heart. Not by looking at just the things that you did this week, weighing the good and the bad. You need to diagnose your heart by asking, what do you love? What do you desire above all things? Whenever you are caught up in a daydream, what are those things or those people or those places that, that, that your mind is t- tends to be drawn towards? Whenever you have a nightmare, what is, it, what, what is the, the nightmare of your life, right? If you were to finish the statement, I could not live without blank, what would that be? What is the, the primary thing that your attention is being uh, uh, dominated by? You know, Kierkegaard in his book, whenever he writes about purity of heart, he spends several chapters talking about the various obstacles to purity in heart. And I think one of the most profound ones is this, that he talks about just simple distractions, the things that are taking our attention away from the mind contemplating and dwelling upon God and Scripture, right? So what is your attention being pulled away by? If you want to know what your heart is worshiping, is these kind of questions that you need to be asking yourself. And then you'll find what your heart is worshiping. Because your, your mouth might say God, it might say Jesus, but the reality of your heart might be different. What are you worshiping? Because you'll become what you worship. Now, some of us might be thinking to ourselves, you know, this all sounds good and fine and dandy. And for the personal 
uh, for the individual Christian who wants to follow the gospel, this sounds good. But what good does it do for the world? Here's something that I want to draw from this, this point about purity of heart, which is that Christianity, if we understand this rightly and, and, and draw and flesh it out, Christianity is the hope of the world because of this verse here and what this verse means. Christianity is the hope of the world precisely because of what it says about purity of heart. What good does this do for the world? Well, here's what it does. Remember, the Beatitudes are describing simultaneously every Christian but the whole Christian community. This is something I talked about in week one, right? So it, it, the, the Beatitudes are not an a la carte menu. You can't say, I'll, I'll be this one, but I won't be this one, right? It's describing every Christian. So every Christian is supposed to be pure in heart. And this is describing the Christian community as a whole as a well. So the Christian community is supposed to be a, 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 a society of people, a subculture of people, right, that live in whatever culture they are in, who are uh, as a community defined by purity of heart. Now, what kind of impact will they have on the world around them and on the society around them if you have a group of people living in the city who are pure in heart, which means that they worship God above all else? Some people might say, on the one hand, that it's basically a net neutral, that it makes them too heavenly minded for any earthly good. Right now, but then there might be other kinds of people who say, "Well, no, it's actually a bad thing because if they love God so much, well, then that might drive them to do things that are bad for the community." Right? Because all they because they've been radicalized by the religion. Now, here's the truth: purity in heart means to love God above all else. But love in Scripture is defined, unlike everywhere else in our culture today. Love in Scripture is defined. Loving God means to obey His word. So if you're impure in heart, it means you love God above all things. And loving God above all things means that you will obey his word. To love God is to, is to follow his law, it is to do the things that he tells us to do and to repent from the things that he tells us not to do, right? It is to obey his word. And guess what? Whenever we obey God's word, obeying his word includes loving our neighbor, Obeying his word includes seeing the, the, the great world-changing truth that comes from Genesis chapter 1, that every person is made in the image of God. Every person is made in the image of God with inherent dignity, worth, and value, and we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Scripture commands that. But guess what? Once again, love is defined. And so, loving your neighbor as yourself, what does that mean? It means treating them as God's word tells us to, which means that we treat our neighbor with love and with justice. You see, what good can it do to have a whole community of people who are chasing after purity in heart and who are being made into a community which is pure in heart, loving God and worshiping him above all else? What good can that do for the world or for the city? It can do a lot. Because when you, have a, you have a community of people who are being transformed, loving God more and more, obeying his word more and more. It, it means that they are then loving their neighbor more and more. They're willing to sacrificially pour themselves out for the sake of their city. They are willing to abandon all, to, to count worldly goods as rubbish in order to uh, put everything they have into the mission to expand the mission, to expand the message of the gospel, right? And to spread the healing that comes through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit into their neighborhoods and city around them. 
It means that they start loving their neighbors and treating them with justice. So that whenever we see injustice in the world around us, we, we don't sit by idly on the sidelines because we're too heavenly minded for any earthly good. But we engage with the injustice in the world, setting what is broken right, right? Changing what is upside down, setting it right side up because God's word tells us to. You see what I mean? by Christianity being the hope of the world, and specifically how blessed are those who are pure in heart is just one of the examples of how Christianity is the hope of the world and the hope of the city. So, how do you become pure in heart then? Christianity is not a vacation. You know, I just got back from vacation, and I'm a little more well-rested than I was before, But vacation didn't fundamentally change me because vacations don't change you. You can go on a vacation and you come back, you're pretty much the exact same, hopefully a little bit more rested. But if you go on a quest, well, then that's a journey that changes you. A quest isn't a vacation where you leave and you come back the exact same. A quest is a journey that you go on, but on the journey you are changed and you're transformed into a different kind of person. Right? Some, some of the best stories and movies and things that we have out there are stories of quests. Right? You know, some of my own personal favorites, like the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, these, these are stories of characters who, who begin in, in, at, at, the, at the beginning of the movie or story where you know, they are, they're one kind of person. They go on this transforming journey, this great quest where they go through all kinds of trials and they go through all kinds of obstacles. But through the quest, they are changed so they come back into a different person. Right? Christianity is not a vacation It is a quest. It is a journey that you go on that changes you in the process, that transforms you through the journey. And so this this helps us to understand this third point on becoming pure in heart, which is this. Becoming pure in heart is not about a destination, but a direction. Because a lot of us might be confused into leaving here today thinking, what's the goalpost that I need to reach for for becoming pure in heart, right? Like, you know, Aaron, how many sins do I need to get out of my life before I finally reach that that stage of pure in heart? You know, how many many, uh, Christian books do I need to read per year before I'm considered pure in heart? (laughs) All these different things, right? Like, what's the goalpost? What's the threshold? Look, the goalpost is in heaven, Whenever you you die, your corrupt flesh decays in the ground. God saves you from corruption, and then one day gives you a new body. There's the goalpost, okay? There's nothing you're going to do in this life to reach that goalpost. What this life is about, once again, is a quest. It's a journey. Purity of heart is a direction. Purity of heart in this life and growing in purity of heart means that we set our sights, we take out our compass, and we point it towards true north, which is Jesus Christ himself, and then we walk in that direction. Sometimes you stumble. Sometimes you get distracted, right, and you start to veer away. And so what do you do? You repent, and you go back, and you, you, you go right on that direction again. You let the Holy Spirit feel, uh, uh, fill up your sails, so that you continue to, to uh, like a ship, right, move towards Jesus. Becoming pure in heart is not about a destination, but a direction. Let me give you some examples from Scripture. There's a lot, but I'm just going to give you two. James, 4, James chapter 4, verse 2 says this, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you men of double mind. So you can see here, especially in the second part of that verse there, he's talking about purity of heart. He's talking about those who are double-minded and need to be single-minded, right? That's integrity. He's talking about cleansing of the hands. Now, how does that happen? He says, by continuing on the journey, drawing near to God, right? He doesn't give you a goalpost there. He doesn't say you cleanse your hands once you do this. He says, draw near to God. And then that is how your hands are cleansed. That's how your heart is purified, right? In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. You see the, the quest, the journey. But he says, keeping our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That's the direction that we're running in. Christianity is a journey. It's a quest where knowing if you're on the right track or not is determined by the goalpost that you reach, but is determined by the direction that you're running in. Like, he, like it says in Hebrews, running with endurance with our eyes focused on Christ. This is what it means. This is, this is purity of heart and practically in our life. That's what it means. Jesus says that for the pure in heart, the reward is to see God. This is why it's so important that we should all desire to be pure in heart, because we should desire to want to see God. Do you know how incredible it is that Jesus says that, that the reward for those who are pure in heart is that they'll see God? Do you know how amazing that is? Because here's the thing. We... In the, I think we, especially in the modern church, in the American church, have tried to domesticate God. We have tried to domesticate God. We have made him small, right? We have made him a God who, whenever scripture tells us that we ought to fear him, no one knows what that means today. No one understands what that means because it's incomprehensible to us today why we should fear God because he has been so domesticated. He has been talked down so much. He's been turned into, into just a, a fuzzy lubby-dubby in the sky rather than the God that the angels fall down before. Rather than the God who is, who is so holy and is so majestic and who is eternal in his glory. The God who burns with an eternal wrath against sin, against all which is not holy, and against all which destroys his beloved creation and which kills uh, the, the life that he has made. Right? But then the God who is eternal in his love and in his grace, whose heart breaks over the condition of his world. We have domesticated God and, and forgotten just how incredible and awesome he is. Remember the story of Moses on the mountain, where he is receiving the tablets of the Ten Commandments. He's receiving the Ten Commandments, and he says to God, he says, let me see your glory, God. You see, now in, in the American church, God would have said, of course, Moses, right? You know, here I am, Moses. That's not what he says. He says, Moses, that would kill you. I cannot let you see my glory. He says, but instead I'll hide you in a rock and then I'll pass by and you'll get to see, you'll get to see the backside of my glory, right? What does that mean? Who knows, right? It means something along the lines of he protected Moses from witnessing the full amount of his glory. He gave him a preview. He gave him a little snippet, a, a dimmed view of his glory, right? But even that much 
caused Moses so that where he descended down from the mountain back to the nation of Israel that was at the bottom, just that little bit that he got to Saul had such an impact on him. It says he came down from the mountain glowing in appearance, right? Just that little bit of glory being exposed upon a human being transformed him. But Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. How? If Moses was going to be killed by by seeing God, how are we going to be able to see God? Here's the thing. There's only one human being who ever achieved purity of heart on earth, and that was Jesus He's the only person who was ever pure in heart on earth, who loved and desired God the Father above all things, and who displayed that love for God in his perfect obedience to him. His reward should have been seeing his Father in his glory. But the, the only person who ever lived who perfectly achieved purity of heart, rather than receiving the reward of seeing God, received the condemnation of the cross. His destination was not the glory, but it was the cross. Because he went to the cross and he died the death that we deserve to die. He took on the punishment for himself. That, that holy, eternal wrath of God that burns against sin. That you and I, because of our divided hearts and minds, because of our idolatrous worship, and because of our disobedience to God's law, that wrath that we deserve, Jesus absorbed upon himself. He took on himself, he swallowed up in his own death. So that in Jesus Christ, swallowing up the death, uh, taking the verdict upon himself that should have been ours, there might be grace for those of us who are not pure in heart. There's grace for us so that God might bless us with the, the, the mercy of his love, of being in relationship with him, and then even more so, so that he might take out that old, divided, dead, corrupt heart, and then put in a new one. David, in Psalm 51, verse 10, cried out to the Lord. He said, create in me a pure heart, O God. The great message of hope in Christianity is this, is that because of the work of Jesus Christ, you can have a new heart placed inside of you. You remember, we talked about that, that tree earlier that was dead on the inside and you just try to, nail corrupt, uh, you, you try to nail fruits to the outside of it. What hope is there for that tree, right? There's nothing that can be done with that tree from our perspective except to cut it down and throw it into the fire. The hope of the gospel is this, is that there's a gardener who can actually implant new life into that tree new life into it that, that, that slowly but surely uh, does away with all of the rot and decay and brings about new life and fruit and good things for the world. There's a gardener who can implant new life into you, who can do away with your past, who can wipe away all of your sin, who can for once and forever demolish and annihilate all of those behaviors and all of those things in your past, all of, the, all of that shame and guilt that is weighing and, and, and hovering over your head. There's a Savior who can do away with it all and give you a new life, who can give you a new name, who can give you a new heart, and that is Jesus because of what he endured for us. So that we can then see God and worship him. What does this mean for us, for those who want to become pure in heart? 
It means this. For anyone who desires purity of heart, your destination is also a cross. We cheapen the gospel very often by saying, you know, Jesus accomplished it on your behalf. There is nothing that you can do to earn it, to, to, to deserve it. All you need to do is receive it, and then you're saved, you're justified once and for all. And that message is true. It's gloriously true. But so often we then stop there. And we don't continue to grow in holiness. We don't continue to then take that new life that God put inside of us and, and, and start to live it out. Right? We start to cheapen grace. But, the, but friends, grace is costly. And if you want that grace in your life, if you want to have purity of heart, if you want God to change your heart, and if you want to progressively uh, be, live it out in, in greater and greater degrees in your life, well, then that starts at the cross. Your destination is also a cross. What does it mean for a purity of heart to begin at the cross? Well, it means death. The cross was the symbol of death. And so for us to grow in purity of heart, and if you want to begin today in purity of heart, if you want to begin as a child of God to, to walk with Christ today, that means death to your old life. This is repentance. Repentance means turning away. It means, it means turning away from your old life, turning away from your, the, the things that you used to worship, and considering them as dead. It means dying to those old desires, dying to that old lifestyle, dying to living for yourself, dying to living for the expectations of others, right? Whatever else it might be. It means dying to all of those things. This is what it means for those who desire purity of heart, for those who want to see God, that you begin at a cross as well. If you are not willing to die to yourself daily, if you are not willing to leave all else behind, considering it as trash for the sake of the gospel, then, then Christ is not your Savior. Until you are willing to lay that all down and behind and die to it, then Christ will, will not be your Lord. If you are not willing to accept the cross, then, purity, then you will not see God. Purity of heart. A relationship with God begins at the cross. You must die to your old life. But then purity of heart, though it begins at the cross, is renewed at the empty tomb. Because Jesus' story didn't end at the cross. He rose again three days later in new life. And it's the promise, and it's what Jesus accomplished in his rising in new life on that first Easter day that gives us the hope that new life can rise inside of us as well. And so for those who, who die with Jesus on the cross, this is what uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that, that for those of us who follow Christ, we have been baptized into his death. So, so if you're willing to lay down your life at Jesus' cross and let your old life die in his death, then there's a promise that there is then resurrection life for you that can be implanted inside of you and then, and then come out through the Holy Spirit. So there's a new life that is offered for us. If you want to become pure in heart, then you must die to your old life and then, uh, and, then, and then let that resurrection life be poured into you. And then, thirdly, it is maintained through disciplined obedience to God's word. How do we become pure in heart? By daily taking up our cross, by daily walking in the new, newness of life that Jesus has given us, practically by, by disciplined obedience to God's word, right? I already said this earlier. Earlier, Purity of heart means loving God above all else. But the Bible tells us what loving God means, 
It means obeying his word. It means obeying his commandments. And so here's what you need to do if you want to grow in purity of heart. You must ruthlessly eliminate all distractions. Like I said in Hebrews chapter 12, you need to lay aside every hindrance and every burden and every sin that's so easily entangled so that you can continue walking on the journey, so that you can continue to take those baby steps of faith and obedience in that direction toward Jesus Christ, running the race with obedience, being fueled and motivated by that resurrection life that he continues to pour into you. And then as you continue to grow in purity of heart and living out that resurrection life, that life then flowing out of you into the world around you, bringing transformation, healing, and hope to our broken society. Let's pray. Lord, it's so tempting to try to begin with saying, what do I need to do? What do I need to accomplish? What are the, the goalposts that I need to reach? Lord, holding control in our hands. Rather than relinquishing control, rather than letting go and throwing ourselves down before the cross. Father, would you help each one of us here today, whether, whether it is just the weary Christian who has been fighting their divided heart, who has, been, who has been working hard and striving to lay aside those hindrances and those sins that entangle and slow us down and distract us, or Lord, whether it's someone who for the very first time today walks into salvation and experiences resurrection power and life poured into their heart. Father, wherever we are today, let us begin at the cross. Let us not begin with works. Let us not begin with outside-in transformation. But let us throw ourselves down at the cross where Jesus died, laying down our sins, laying down our shame, laying down our divided uh, hearts, laying down our idolatrous worship at his cross, our old life and all of its, its wishes and loves and desires, laying it all down and letting it die in Jesus' death. And then being opened up to receive that new life. Lord, let us begin here today. And every day as we walk and as we strive to obey, let, let all of our walking, and let, let the quest, the journey that we are on, uh, chasing after the gold, Jesus Christ, let it be fueled by this new life that you are pouring into us, Lord, so that we might receive inside-out transformation a transformation that brings about real fruit in our lives. Not just nailing apples to a dead tree, but, but true new life. In this life, Lord, that might not only transform us as individuals, but then bring about good things for our world, which then might bless the community and bring healing to the society around us. Father, through making each one of us individuals who have been given a clean heart by you. Would you turn us into a community that then has an actual impact on the city around us? Loving our neighbors as your word tells us to in, in selfless, sacrificial love and in justice. So we might see restoration brought to the city, to the state and the nation that we live in. Father, we pray these things in the name of the one who who 
accomplished our salvation, beat death itself, rose again in new life, and the one who is the only hope for our world, Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.